So how fun and exciting then to be uh, in a passage that uh, has to do with baptism. Seems, seems pretty appropriate here. We are in Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 15 to 38 today. Um, we are, uh, this is on page 1020, if you're using the black Bibles that are provided for you. I do want to thank Rich for stepping in at the last minute last week uh, to, uh, to bring the Word of God to us all. Um, I am glad to report that uh, my family uh, and I are, are healthy, uh, or at least as, as healthy as can be expected in the middle of January. I do thank you all for your prayers and your encouragement. Last week, Rich introduced us to John, to the ministry of John. John, uh, the son of Zechariah, or as other uh, gospel writers refer to him, John the Baptist. This is not because he was the founder of some new religion with big hair and southern accents, uh, but rather uh, because his ministry, uh, at least from outward appearances, revolves around baptizing uh, people in preparation for the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. Probably more accurately, uh, we would call him John the Baptizer, uh, but you know, traditions are hard to shake. So we've got John the Baptist. Uh, John, as, as Rich pointed out, is the final Old Testament prophet. Now, he's the only Old Testament prophet who lives in the New Testament, but that doesn't change the reality that he is an Old Testament prophet in the fact that he is a prophet who points to the coming of the Messiah, the prophet who points to Jesus. John's ministry to the people is one entirely, then, of preparation and anticipation. Uh, His baptism was a baptism of preparation. He was calling them to repentance. Their repentance was a repentance of preparation, to prepare themselves for the coming of Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of God. Everything about John was intended to point to a greater one, That would come after John. Uh, His miraculous, the announcement of his miraculous conception, the coming of the Messiah would have a greater, even more miraculous conception. His birth and the celebration of his birth with the song of his father is overshadowed by the birth of the one who came after him, whose birth is celebrated by the songs of angels. Everything about John is intended to point us to a greater one who would come after John, including the very ministry of John. And so the title of today's sermon, The End of John's Ministry, it's sort of a double meaning. Yes, we're going to see uh, that this is the end of John's ministry. It will, this passage will include John's imprisonment. But more than just the end of his public ministry, we are looking at the end of John's ministry, the goal of John's ministry, the purpose of John's ministry, and that is to point us to Jesus Christ. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And while I said, and it says in your bulletin that this, we're looking at verses 15 to 38, I'm only going to read through verse 23. 
As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So as we look at a uh, passage, it's a transitional passage, it's a uh, it makes sense then that half of the passage would be about, half of our outline is about John and half of our outline then is about Jesus. And it's not a misprint in your bulletin. The last two points of the outline are the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of Jesus. So, uh, and then one last thing. Since I wouldn't even read it to you, I probably won't say as much to you about the genealogy as you might want me to. Um, but right now during Sunday school, adult Sunday school is just a time of unpacking the, the passage from the sermon a little more and applying it or asking questions about it. So you are more than welcome to join me in adult Sunday school and ask me any questions you have about the genealogy that I'm not going to read to you. So, uh, so with that, Let's begin by looking at uh, the low places and high prices uh, of John. So after 400 years of silence, the word of the Lord has come once again to one of God's chosen children. And this one has been sent uh, to prepare the way. Uh, John's ministry is so significant that he is one of very few prophets who receives prophecies. So like there are prophecies in the Old Testament about John. Uh, and that was brought out last week in the passage of Isaiah 40 that was quoted, that, that John is the one that Isaiah spoke of who would come and prepare the way, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. That, uh, that, that the Lord was going to come and, and straighten what we have made crooked. He was going to bring down the haughty and raise up the humble. That he was going to make the path 
manageable, doable for us that was rough and hard and difficult. This is the message that John is bringing. And so the people would very naturally wonder, so who is the Messiah? Who is the one? There would have been very faithful followers of God who would be longing for that deliverance, longing for that. And, and when this man comes along who's finally uh, bringing the word of God, after 400 years of silence, someone is bringing us the word of God. This man who's, who's unafraid of the cultural elites, he's willing to call out sin no matter what level it's at. He calls a spade a spade. He comes and reminds them that repentance isn't just for the low and humble. Repentance for the high and proud as well. His message is hard to hear, but, but there is life in it. There is hope in it if you listen. And so uh, it makes sense that they might begin to wonder, maybe this is the rescuer we're looking for. Maybe he is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. And John, in a very beautiful picture of humility, like refuses to take that bait, like refuses to, to view himself as any kind of savior, any kind of uh, hope for God's children. John points out very quickly that not only is he not the Christ, but he's not even worthy to untie the sandals of the Christ. See, in those days, if you wanted to uh, sign up as an apprentice or a student under a tutor, if you wanted to be a disciple of a rabbi, you didn't pay tuition. Like, there weren't fees that you would pay. You would go and attach yourself to a rabbi, to a teacher, to someone, and you would essentially become their indentured servant. Like, you would be their gopher. You would run around and get them things. You would, you would be the one that would have to go out and get the coffee every morning and make sure that you got you know, the right amount of shots of espresso and the not right, right amount of cream and the right amount of sugars. And You were the one that had to go and organize the meals. And In fact, you see this not in a negative way, but you see it in a positive way in John 4. So Jesus and his disciples are walking through the day, and they stop at a well. And you remember they're in Samaria, and it says that Jesus sent his 12 disciples ahead of him to go get some food. I mean, that's a very normal thing that a rabbi would do. He would take a rest, and his disciples would go and take care of sort of the, the nitty-gritty of things. He would do this, you know, when he sends a couple of disciples ahead in Jerusalem. It's like, hey, go and make sure this upper room is ready for us. These are normal things that a rabbi could expect his disciples to do for him. But one thing that a disciple, a student, was never expected to do, and even it was in the rabbi's writings, one thing that you would never put on your disciple was to touch or deal with your feet. That was a task too demeaning, too degrading. Uh, that was reserved really for the lowest of your slaves. You did not, as someone's disciple, you were not expected to ever take off their filthy sandals from their filthy feet. And here is John saying, I'm not even worthy to do that with this Messiah. I am so, my ministry and his ministry are so far apart, I'm lower than the lowest slave in comparison. 
And so there's two observations we want to see here. Like in a day and time when we think self-esteem is going to save us all, like if we were to hear someone talk like this, we'd be like, dude, you need a new therapist. I feel like your emotional IQ is a little askew because you have a really low view of yourself and you've got to get over that. I mean, you are the one, you're the preparer of the way. You got to accept that. This is, you know, God is very impressed with you. You are, you are good enough. You are smart enough. And gosh darn it, people like you. Luke doesn't seem to think there's anything wrong with John's view of himself. He doesn't see this as false humility or an insecurity that needs to be corrected. John, when he views his work in comparison to God's work, recognizes that his work is nothing without God's work. He's not alone. Paul does this in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1 and in 1 Corinthians 3, we learn that the people in Corinth have been arguing over, oh, well, I follow Paul. Oh, well, I follow Peter. Oh, well, I follow Apollos. And they had these, these factions where they were fighting with each other over who was better. And, and Paul says, what are you talking about? We are nothing. Who cares? So one sows and one waters. Isn't it God alone who does the work? And so there's this correct view, this, this humility that we ought to have toward our work that God calls us to. But a second thing that this should do for us when we see John's response and his discussion of not worthy to even touch Jesus' feet, doesn't it really put into perspective what Jesus does in John 13? So the disciples, by by cultural expectations, aren't even expected to wash Jesus' feet. That's a task too demeaning. And yet here's Jesus. On the night he's going to be betrayed, and he is washing his disciples' feet. He is taking the humble position. As he states in Mark 10, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's two applications from just this portion. I'd say uh, if John had that view of himself and Jesus takes that stance toward us, uh, there really is no place for pride or arrogance in Christian leadership. Uh, you know, some of you young kids, uh, you're, you're starting to learn grammatical words. And so there's this thing called an oxymoron. And this isn't a foolish person with good complexion. It's actually a word that has to do with uh, like two words that seem like they are opposite and don't belong together, but they actually do. So there's things like a minor crisis or a working holiday, or it's the same difference. Uh, or the most popular one in this area is military intelligence. Uh, and so everyone thinks, oh, these things don't go together. Uh, so those are apparent uh, paradoxes, but they're not actually. Uh, but let me tell you something that is or ought to be truly paradoxical, ought to truly cause us to say that doesn't belong together 
and that is a proud pastor, an arrogant elder. Uh, I'm sorry, this is the best I could come up with, a diva deacon. These things should not be. There is no place for pride and arrogance in leaders of God's people. Because if anyone understands grace and unmerited favor, it ought to be the leaders of God's people. But second, really, there shouldn't be such a thing as any proud followers of Christ, should there? I mean, are any of us in a position to act as though our unmerited favor was a little less unmerited than their unmerited favor. And yes, I don't deserve it, but at least I understand that I don't deserve it. Or at least I get these things better than other people. If every gift from God is just that, a gift from God, where, where is there room for boasting or pride? In Philippians 2, Paul says, don't do anything out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Our call is to humility. But we must beware, beware of the false or pretended humility. That humility that takes the low road in order to be elevated. That, that, that idea that uh, humility is a means to an end. That eventually will be exalted. How often do you and I approach following Christ in this way? Yeah, I'll be humble. Yes, I'll do. But there's a little quid pro quo. There's a little... Like, you're going to take care of some things for me, though, right, Jesus? I can feign humility for a little while, but if nobody notices how humble I am, it's going to get old really fast. John takes the low place, and even taking the lowest place ends up paying the highest price. Do you notice that taking the low place doesn't result in happily ever after for Jonathan, for John? He pays the high price. What does John receive for his humility, for his obedience, for his faithful presence? Imprisonment. You see, John doesn't alter his message concerning sin and the need for repentance based on popular opinion or based on who might be offended or even based on what's in the political best interest of God's people. Like, let's not point out the sins of our leaders because they're really doing a good thing for us right now. John has no problem saying, this guy is a deviant. He's awful, he's a sinner, and he needs to repent. And in the end, it costs him his livelihood and his freedom, and would eventually cost him his life. As we learn in Matthew and in Mark, that John is eventually beheaded. He never will get out of prison. Will you follow Christ to the end, even if that might include your end? Are we willing to stand for what is true and what is right, even if it means 
we won't stand long. This is why we sang, Jesus, I my cross have taken. I would urge you, uh, I love that we have the words in the bulletins. Take this song home and look through it again. And can we, can we actually sing these words that we just sang together? Can I sing these with, with honesty and integrity? Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow you. Destitute, despised, forsaken, you are my all. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. And every verse goes deeper and deeper into this reality. Because it looks like this is the end of John's ministry. But the reality is, because John's ministry pointed to Christ, all of us know who John is. All of us know who John was. This wasn't the end of his ministry, even as Jesus was the end and purpose of his ministry, which brings us then to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John points us to Jesus and to the baptism of Jesus, and then John has the privilege of performing the baptism of Jesus. And so before we get to the baptism of Jesus that John officiated, we have to look and understand the baptism of Jesus that John spoke of. So in verses 16 and 17, when he says, I am not the Christ, he goes on and says that I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn the chaff, though, he will burn with unquenchable fire. John tells his followers and you and me that there is a huge difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus. John's baptism is one of preparation, of repentance, of looking forward to the coming of Christ. Jesus' baptism is one of fulfillment, one of accomplishment. The new covenant has come. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. There's still a cleansing, but the cleansing is less like a bath and more like a refiner's fire purifying you and making you as holy as you need to be. You are now made pure and holy and righteous in God's eyes. You're not prepared for reception, but you are now a full recipient of God's grace in the new covenant. This is why, by the way, John's message can be called good news. Do you wonder about that passage, that verse 18? With this and many other words, he exhorted them with good news. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And we, we have a summary of John's message, and he's like, really? That's good news? Doom, gloom, destruction, winnowing fork, burning chaff, unquenchable fire. In Matthew, he says, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Hallelujah, hallelujah. So when you are sick, and I mean really sick, deathly sick, there are two kinds of good news. True good news and false good news. False good news is easier to take. It's easier to swallow. It's more comforting at the moment. True good news, when you are deathly ill, is hard to hear and difficult to accept. False good news says, you're fine. It's going to be fine. 
you know, yes, doors are shut, but windows are opening. You know, there's a silver lining. Look at all the lemonade you'll get to make. All these, everything's going to be fine. It's going to work out just fine. But a true diagnosis says, oh, you're sick. You are dying. There's nothing you can do to fix it, but I know someone who could. And it's going to be painful. It's going to be long. But you can live. My uncle just died a couple weeks ago. Uh, he was battling lung cancer for several years. And uh, about two or three years ago, we were fishing and my brother and I were asking him how things were going. And, and as we were asking him, he was lighting up a cigarette as he had been doing since he was 10 years old. And uh, he told us, he said, you know, the doctor told me that, you know, it's one of the most common types of lung cancer. He said, you know, and the doctor said, you know, I mean, I can't, like, I can't really tell you for sure if smoking is why you got this lung cancer. Lots of people who don't get, who don't smoke, get this kind of lung cancer. And then, you know, he went on and told us more stories. And so then later, my brother and I were talking, we were like, I would like that doctor's home address. Like what? I don't, I don't understand that. Let me just make you feel comfortable now mentality because the truth might be hard for you to follow. John brought truly good news. The judgment was coming. The axe was at the root of the tree. Your birthright cannot save you. Your traditions cannot save you. Your wealth and your career and your investments and your government job and your government pension, they cannot save you. And if you don't repent, the only thing left for you will be a baptism of fire and judgment. But one is coming. One has come with the power to baptize you with his very spirit who will purify and cleanse and wash and restore you utterly and finally. He's coming. He's here. Are you ready? Let me help you. That is good news. And then just briefly, what do we do with Jesus' baptism? What is going on? Why is Jesus baptized. Luke barely mentions it. It's sort of a passing thing, although he mentions it. There's no doubt that the baptism of Jesus marks the beginning of his official earthly ministry. In fact, all four Gospels either speak plainly of or allude to Jesus' baptism. All four Gospels speak plainly of the descending of the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove onto Jesus. And so what is happening here? So a couple of things. Uh, in the Old Testament, there are three offices that we talk about. We talk about prophet and priest and king. We talk about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all three of those offices, prophet, priest, and king. Did you know that prophets and priests and kings are all anointed? 
Priests and kings were actually physically anointed for their work. So priests would be anointed by the high priest. Kings would be anointed by either prophets or judges or priests for their work. In fact, kings are called the anointed one. David was called the anointed one uh, because they were physically anointed for the work that they were called to. Prophets in the Old Testament were spiritually anointed. They were anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would anoint prophets for the work that they were called to. And so here in this event, Jesus is being both physically and spiritually anointed. He is being anointed as the final, the perfect, the fulfillment of those offices. He is the anointed prophet. He is the anointed priest. He is the anointed king. Also something we see here is the Trinity at work. The Father speaking, the Son acting, the Spirit applying. It sounds almost like something we've, we've even been taught and learned about the work of the Trinity in our salvation, that the Father determines it, and the Son acts and accomplishes it, and the Spirit applies it to us. Here we see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together, speaking You've got the Holy Spirit being poured out and the Father's pleasure being poured out onto the Son. This is not, by the way, an obedience thing. And we do this sometimes with Jesus' baptism. We say, well, it's because he needed to be obedient in every way. But remember, baptism wasn't a call in the law. That's why the, the Jewish people were coming to John and saying, why, why are you having us get baptized? It wasn't part of the law. Jesus isn't being baptized because it's part of the law. This baptism, it was an act of repentance and preparation. It's an act of acknowledging one's need for the coming Messiah, your need to be ready and washed and cleansed. So then why is Jesus being baptized for the coming of himself? Jesus who needs no preparation. Jesus who has nothing to repent of. What we see here is the beginning of Jesus' ministry with Jesus identifying with the sins of his people. Jesus isn't baptized for his own need and his repentance. He, ba he is baptized in order to be counted with his people. It's a, simply an act of identity to be counted among those who need baptism. In receiving this baptism, Jesus is marking himself as one of us. And so then what we see here is that Jesus begins his earthly ministry by submitting to this baptism, this baptism that he doesn't need in order to identify with you and me and be counted with us. And then Jesus will end his earthly ministry by receiving the baptism by fire of God's wrath. God's wrath poured out onto him. A baptism that he does not deserve in order to deliver you and me from the wrath that we do deserve. This is part of why Luke places the genealogy where he does. It's not at the beginning. It's right here in the middle. It's, it's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Here's the genealogy to remind you that Jesus identifies with us all the way back to the beginning of humanity. Jesus is the fulfillment 
of the promise of God made to David. Your son will sit on your throne forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham. Through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise God made to Adam. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you. You are our Savior. You are Son of God and Son of Man. We thank you that you came to identify with us in every way and yet without sin. We thank you, Jesus, for taking on that baptism of your Father's wrath so that we could be baptized into your family. We pray, God, that we would uh, take a very humble view of our own work and lives that we would never cease to praise you and to thank you. You whose word is always true. You who have never been shaken and never will be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.